All right, folks, welcome to this episode of the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. Today, our guest is Johanna Greenbaum. Johanna is the Chief Development Officer at the Brooklyn Navy Yard Development Corporation in Brooklyn, New York. She uh, lives in Manhattan, and we just had a great interview about how to be a developer, what the actual Brooklyn Navy Yard Development Corp does, what's in there behind those fences in Brooklyn. Uh, it's pretty amazing, the manufacturing going on there. I didn't know, what, I really had no idea what was really going on there. I, I, I've known about the Brooklyn Navy Yard forever, um, but I really knew, never knew what was inside there. And she has an amazing career going, you know, she was an attorney, she worked for Bloomberg, uh, Mayor Bloomberg, and then transitioning into the private sector. It's, it's a pretty amazing journey. And uh, I love talking to her and hope you enjoy it as well. So here we go. Hi, Johanna Greenbaum, Chief Development Officer at Brooklyn Navy Yard Development Corporation. Thank you for joining me today. How are you doing today? I'm great, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to be here with you. I know. Well, I don't know, but thank you. <laughs> Thanks for saying that. <laughs> I've always loved enjoyed talking to you. Um, are you in? Uh, are you in Brooklyn? Um, for the recording, I am in my sound studio at home. <laughs> you have a sound studio? Awesome. No, I'm you. joking. I'm more like in a closet <laughs> at home. This is New York. <laughs> Closets double as offices. I'm in my office. You're um, in the big city, Manhattan? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't want any background noise uh, disrupting us. Well, I appreciate it. How are things going over at the uh, Brooklyn Navy Yard? That's, uh, I mean, I heard about that project. That's been going on a while, that project, right? Yeah. Um, about 221 years. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's a while. Yeah. Um, we were founded, um, the Brooklyn Navy Yard was founded uh, by the John Adams administration in 1801. So depending on when you start the history of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. I'll, I'll start there. I read his biography. Okay, great. <laughs> um, it's actually pretty interesting. There was a big debate in American uh, society and government at that time about whether we should be militarized or not uh, post uh, the Revolutionary War. And there was like a disagreement, I think, between Jefferson, who was coming in, and Adams, who was going out, or maybe Adam reverse. But, um, and he, they quickly, at the end of the administration, bought land uh, for three naval yards, um, one uh, which became known as the New York Naval Yard, and then later the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Um, in Brooklyn. Uh, and today, uh, I think they started with a land purchase of about 40 acres. Today, we're 300 acres. Um, almost a we're a neighborhood scale. Um, we consider ourselves a city within a city. Mm. Um, uh, we're 300 acres and 6.3 million square feet under roof with additional um, open land uh, that's used in a variety of different ways by a variety of different companies. So it's a it's kind of like its own special, unique, creative industries neighborhood. Um, Where in Brooklyn is it? We are um, just off of the Manhattan Bridge. We're between the neighborhoods of Dumbo and Williamsburg, um, yeah. which have become popular places to visit and Instagram from. Um, <laughs> and um, we're actually, I sort of consider us the Bermuda Triangle of Brooklyn because um because we are former naval facility, we do have a perimeter line and fence. And so you can't just come through the Navy Yard. Uh, you have to either work there or um, be visiting someone there. And so 
on the mental map of the average New Yorker, people know something is there, but they don't know what's going on behind yeah. the gate. And so I'm happy to share with you what's happening. What is going on behind the gate? Sure. Um, <laughs> lots of interesting stuff. Um, so we're, um, like I said, um, you know, over 6 million square feet and about 450 plus businesses um, at the, at the Nivier today. And, and there would all be considered small businesses by like national standards. Mm. Um, some of them are quite large, you know, they range in size from like two and three pe- per- person, small businesses to, um, you know, production lines of 250 people or more. Um, and, uh, they're, we're really focused and they're really focused on, um, manufacturing, light manufacturing, advanced manufacturing, hardware, uh, uh, tech, and then also traditional sort of manufacturing fields we have. I consider us the Noah's Ark of New York City business. So we have one and probably two of everything you can think of from drone, autonomous drone companies to um, nano microscope companies to metal workers who do the architectural metal restoration on historic buildings like Trinity Church in Lower Manhattan. to fashion designers, um, we have Lafayette 148, um, uh, which is a a, a popular women's work brand, uh, work clothing brand. Um, to Echo Shoes has their headquarters, uh, their U.S. headquarters at the Brooklyn New Yard. We have a couple shoe companies: Adam Shoes, oh, yeah. Echo Shoes. So, um, you know, there's there's a wide range um, of a bunch of creative folks who are um, making things and doing it in New York City, which is pretty unique um, and not necessarily when you think what you think about when you think about businesses in New York. Um, and it's a really vibrant ecosystem. Um, I, we can get into this, uh, down the road, but I think it's a really important ecosystem for New York and other big cities to have. Um, and I think that was especially evidenced during, um, the spring of 2020, uh, when New York basically shut down, uh, due to COVID yeah. and was in serious need of, of PPE. Um, personal protective equipment and, and Navy Yard companies really stepped up and switched their production lines from whatever they make to yeah. helping out. Adapted. Adapted. Do you have storefronts there too? Is it like, is there residential there? Uh, there's no residential. Great question. Um, we actually just went through a rezoning process or um, what we call in New York, a ULERP, Unified Land Use Review Process. ULERP. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you can come up with a better name. Um, uh, uh, this we closed that out in 2021, and there was a little bit of residual residential from the time of Navy when there were um, Navy um, officer homes, and as well as like barracks for the um, mm-hmm. for the more junior t- uh, members of the team. Um, but we don't have residential. Um, we do have uh, some retail. Uh, we have New York City's only Wegmans supermarket. Oh, you got a Wegmans? We got a Wegmans, um, which Wegmans. really puts us on the map um, for Wegmans. the region. My mother um, would love that. She would be there every day. Chris, I can get you a pass. You can go to Wegmans without a pass, but if you want to come onto the yard, uh, we'd love to have you. And your My mom, mom is going to be in Queens on <laughs> Monday okay. and Tuesday. I'm going to see her Tuesday. Both of those Maybe days Maybe I'll take are her open. to Wegmans. 
You can take her to the Navy Yard. We can come to the top of our one of our buildings and best skyline view um, you can get. Um, but yeah, we have a Wegmans and um, there is some retail surrounding the Wegmans. Uh, that's in a particular corner and was a particular um, kind of sub-development within the larger development. Um, the Wegmans supermarket in particular was a 30-year standing commitment to the surrounding community um, immediately outside the yard at that, um, on that, uh, across from the Wegmans is um, uh, several NYCHA developments and mm -hmm. communities, and that had been a food desert for quite some time. And so there was a huge community goal of, um, of, uh, of having an affordable, high-quality grocery store um, to service that community. And frankly, it services, it's watershed is much larger than uh, just across the street. Um, and I, my understanding is it is one of the highest grossing Wegmans, uh, even though it's one of the smaller footprints where it's only 74,000 square feet, which for New York is huge for Wegmans is small. Yeah. Um, but they do a great business and have great food and we welcome everyone to come by. And so, do you have NYCHA community there? You still have the NYCHA? And yes. Then, so in order to, you know, you're the, the head honcho there, chief development officer, you have to know retail, affordable, uh, industrial, public, Creative private, yep. <laughs> all that stuff, right? Like yeah, what kind of different, uh, <laughs> so you're, you're developing a city. Yeah. Well, uh, let me backtrack. Let, so let's, so it was a naval base. Yes. Now it's not a naval base, right? Yep. Yep. So when was that transition and what happened there? Uh, great question. So um, the yard, um, if you do like a Google flyover of the yard, for example, um, you'll see that there are, there's like generations of buildings. So we've got buildings today that range from completed in the 1850s to complete completed within the last 18 months. So we've got like the whole architectural um, and yeah. we, we've got a big range. Um, and part of that is that the Navy built out the space over time. And every time that America entered a conflict, they got some money to build a new building at the Navy Yard and, and build some more ships. So I would be remiss by not talking a little bit about some of the important things that happened there um, in under naval control, which um, included the um, building of the Missouri, um, which is a large uh, uh, battleship that was, um, I believe, at Pearl Harbor, um, and the incredible um, uh, waterfront infrastructure that we have still today in our dry docks. Um, our dry docks are, we do have a, a tenant who is a ship repair um, facility, one of the only on the East Coast, and mm. he still operates um GMT shipyards. Um, Alex Gomez is the proprietor and he still um, operates these massive dry docks that can, that, that basically you could lay the Chrysler building down in one of them. They are huge. Um, yeah. Not basically, you could. Um, it's not scary. If you could just pluck it up and put it down. Um, it is intimidating. My, my favorite thing is to um, look out the window of our office or from the roof of our building and try to pick out the little ants that are walking around the um, dry dock, which are, of course, people, but they look <laughs> minuscule. 
Um, so um, so the, there's incredible amount of naval history that happened here um, that is important and does, in many ways, there is a common theme of innovation and production from the Navy, Navy days to the present. Um, Navy had, an, had their innovation lab here. Um, they, there were a number of things that were invented here, including some submarine technology, and ether, I think, was first used and maybe oh, even invented yeah. here. Yep. Yeah. Um, we have a naval hospital that's being completely renovated. It's no longer a hospital, but that was its old function. Um, and basically what happened is that in every armed conflict, they, they would build a new building. And so um, that continued through World War II. Um, in World War II uh, and in the mobilization effort up into World War II, the Navy Yard um, uh 70,000 people came to work there every day. Wow. So this was a major, major hub of employment for New York, uh, for Brooklynites. Uh, and most people who have a connection or come to a meeting at the Navy Yard and are sitting down, you'll I'll often hear them say, oh, you know, my grandfather, my great uncle, my great aunt or someone in my family's history worked here during World War II. Uh, um, and and they're, you know, we, they touched a lot of lives. Um, and that's why I think in 1966, when the Navy decommissioned the facility, largely because those ships got too big to come under the, the uh, East River bridges, yeah. um, um, it, it became a real question about what do we do? Um, and what does New York do? And it took a number, a couple of years for the federal government to transfer the land to the city of New York. There were a number of bad ideas or failed ideas, um, everything from like creating a Detroit car production facility on the Brooklyn waterfront uh, to other kinds of production that didn't really pan out. Um, and then there were a number of years that uh, I think the yard had some, you know, it was a little bit of the Wild West. Uh, there was some vacancies. There um, was... I think we had like packs of wild dogs roaming. <laughs> yeah. um, it was really, it was really like, like, like a frontier. It, yeah, it was really a frontier space. Um, and then gradually over the last 20 plus years, um, there's been a real investment in, in the place. And I don't want you to think that you'll be chased away by wild dogs um, when you come to visit Wegmans because you won't. Um, <laughs> Um, but there's been a real investment um, in the facility and also a real need in the New York City economy um, to have space for these types of businesses um, that we've talked about, um, manufacturers, um, innovators, hardware tech companies that can't necessarily afford and don't necessarily want to be in higher priced office space um, in another borough or in Manhattan. Um, where we're kind of providing, we're sort of this um, pun partially intended safe harbor on the um, on the coast of Brooklyn uh, for companies to really scale and grow um, here um, uh, in New York, where a lot of companies in these kinds of spaces don't necessarily think that New York is an option for them and yeah. they need to find a cheaper place to be, even if they want the t access to the talent and access to the diverse talent that New York and Brooklyn provide. That's amazing. I can't believe I didn't really know what was going on in there. Well, we're, we're a great kept secret. 
we're shy. Are you trying um, to like, what's the, what's their trajectory there? What's, what's going on? What's the next step? Sure. So over the, um, in the last, uh, two years, um, maybe a little bit more 30 months, um, we've brought several hundred thousand square feet of new space, new build on online. And the reason for that is that over those 20 years that I talked about, we renovated uh, the buildings that the Navy left us, um, improved the infrastructure, um, really brought things uh, back to life, building by building and step by step. And frankly, our, you know, started to run out of space, but we needed space to continue to fuel these companies and fuel the sector of the economy. Um, so we've brought new space on a lot of the Wegmans opened uh, and the build and there is light manufacturing space above that Wegman supermarket and across the street from it in a separate building. Um, that Wegmans opened October, 2019, like October 29th. So like really just moments before COVID. Yeah. Um, and uh, we brought several hundred thousand square feet on just before and uh, had some buildings complete during COVID. Um, and um, I'm, happy to say that our leasing activity has been really strong um, throughout the pandemic. And we are now in that same place of needing more space. Uh, mm -hmm. So we are in the process um, of uh, beginning uh, design, uh, conceptual design, and uh, thinking about our uh, next ground up building, um, which we would really like to be a model for vertical manufacturing in New York City and around the country, potentially elsewhere around the world, um, you know, this is, a, this is the kind of space that um, in cities can often be converted. Like we're not in my, you know, I can't show you my office right now, but <laughs> my office would be a great three bedroom condo um, yeah. with an amazing view and the kind of ceiling heights that everyone wants in residential, um, <laughs> which is why a lot of these former manufacturing spaces around New York and around other cities in, in, in high cost tier one cities have been converted to residential. Um, and that's not, that's not something that's in the cards and not the mission and orientation of the Navy Yard, of course. Um, uh, and we will, we will continue to be here for these type of, types of companies, but it also means that we need to build more space and need to, prove that um, there is a good value proposition for the city um, and for communities uh, to have these kinds of companies and that you need to create new space for them. <laughs> um, so it's, so owned by the, it's owned by the city, right? Well, the underlying land is owned by the city. Um, I am the chief development officer um, at the Brooklyn Navy Yard Development Corpora Corporation and we're a separate organization that um, uh, manages, develops, um, and runs the property. Mm. So it's a very unique structure. I don't think that there is another structure like it in um, that I'm aware of. Um, uh, uh, so we have to balance our own books and <laughs> run the property accordingly. But do you have to like work with the city when you want to build something, or how does that work? Well, everyone in New York has to work yeah. with the city. Whatever. I didn't know if it was like a separate like process. Yeah, we're a separate entity. I mean, we went through a city Euler process like every private developer does um, and um, every private applicant does. Um, and yes, we, we have a lot of hand-in-hand -hand coordination. Um, but honestly, I think real estate in New York 
no matter where you're, what borough you're in or what you're trying to build, you're always involved um, with the city, um, with uh, regulatory agencies, with communities, and and certainly that is a big part of what we do. Um, I, I also want to talk a little bit about, we have a somewhat non-traditional um, uh, for a landlord anyway, um, uh, function at the Navy Yard, uh, which is we run a workforce development and employment center. Oh, nice. Um, Let me talk that about helps, that, please. Yeah, that helps connect um, our um, the jobs within the yard um, to the communities outside the yard and to the communities outside the yard in the greater New York City, but particularly focused on those nature communities that are our neighbors. Um, and that's 10-ish surrounding neighborhoods, um, most immediately proximate to the yard, but of course, all of New York City. So, Mm. um, you know, I mentioned that the Navy had 70,000 people, um, many of them civilians working here during the World War II. When they left, there were 10,000 people working here. Um, We surpassed that 10,000 number just the summer before COVID, which was a major milestone to like return Brooklyn to that old, to that to that um, yeah. moment, and now we're, um, you know, rising to about twelve thousand uh, people coming to work here every day. So we're really like a central business district, um, unlike Midtown, I'd say, yeah. um, but with some of the same characteristics in terms of how many people, you know, a major source of employment and uh, people coming to work. It's amazing. Next stop, bring the Dodgers back, right? Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Do you have a place to put them? Uh, <laughs> you can build something, I'm sure, over there in the Navy Yard. Um, but so, but you have experience working. So, I mean, did you have experience working with all these different asset classes before you got into this role or came into this role? I have a unique background in that I've worked, I've built um, ground up residential, um, 1,100 units on the Brooklyn waterfront, both affordable and um, market rate. So a mixed use, mixed income project. Um, I've done commercial. This is partially commercial and partially industrial. So now I think I've hit every, I'm sure there's an asset class out there that I haven't hit, but, um, (laughs) it is, it, it, yes, I've done a lot of different types of, uh, building and real estate development work. Yeah. Cause you started out, you went undergrad and then you're an attorney, right? Is that correct? Yes. I am a land use lawyer by training, um, and a zoning dork by night. Um, (laughs) Um, I, uh, I actually, uh, yeah, I went to law school. I came back to New York. I knew that I wanted to work in this really niche kind of weird part of, um, part of the world called, uh, land use law, um, <laughs> uh, where, uh, so I, I, um, was an associate at a, a major New York city law firm with this practice, um, where all the other lawyers would come into my office, which was like covered in maps and mm. architectural plans. And yeah. like, what is it that you do here? <laughs> like, yeah. um, we, you know, look at case law words, like where are all your words? Um, <laughs> um, so it was a very different kind of practice. I, I did go to law school, but I never wanted to be a lawyer in the traditional sense. And a lot of people think of it mm. um, like going to court or gearing up to go to court. Um, the land use practice, um, is very, um, my clients were all developers and my job was to shepherd their projects through 
very complicated um, entitlement process in New York, which involved being kind of the um, glue between the development vision and the regular the, the city agencies and regulatory um, and entitlement process. And it was great. I did um, a lot of city planning work, work with city planning, um, housing work, um, landmarks and preservation, board of standards and appeals, which is a weird um, <laughs> special commission within the, within the city. Um, and it was great training uh, for what I, I ultimately went to um, work in city hall um, uh, helping to lead the economic development team there and then into private after that back into private development. Did you have a desire to be a developer at some like before, like you, did you go to law school to like get into development? So this is a great question. Um, I, um, you really hit at the heart, uh, Chris. Um, <laughs> I am. Um, I grew up. Uh, yeah, tell me about where you grew up. Would you grow up in the city? I grew up. Where do you think I grew up? Long Island. Random guess. I'm from <laughs> Chicago. Um, oh yeah. Nobody can ever guess, so that's why. Maybe I guess. Chicago. Um, that's a city. I'm from. I'm from Chicago. I'm from. I grew up down in downtown Chicago. Um, I. This gives this won't compute because um, of how young I am, of course, but I did not have a driver's license until my mid thirties. Funny that that five years ago, true. Five years ago. No, no, no. Like I haven't even hit my mid thirties, but um, <laughs> somehow I did not have a driver's license until my mid thirties. So I, that's all to say that cities were or this the city was instrumental in my childhood in a, in a time um, I'm going to date myself again in the eighties when not a lot of people lived in cities um, and not a lot of people, if they could leave um, a city like Chicago at that time because of crime and other things were choosing to live in cities. And it was very much part of my identity. So um, I didn't know really, I don't have a family that's real estate developers or mm. involved in real estate. Um, um, I didn't know how to like break into this career. I didn't even know that it was a career, frankly. Right, um, yeah. I don't, not to sound naive, but, um, how I would you, it's such a, yeah, there's, yeah, there's, it's a, there's such a small and sometimes insular industry. Um, um, so I went to college, I wrote my thesis on, um, on early American cities. I, oh, cool. we, we talked about my early career and I, I got to be honest, like, I think that it wasn't probably until I was at a law firm um, working with developers that I realized that, like, it would be um, that there was, uh, you know, a job in this um, on the other side, basically the people who were my clients. Um, and um, so I think that's the moment. If you're looking for the moment, that's the moment. I did not. Um, I. I did not, you know, go through grammar school thinking, wouldn't it be cool to build buildings? Because I didn't even know that. that was you had an interest cool. in urbanism. Yes. In urban in design, urban, urban planning. Life. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I would do too. So I have a family member that's an, a developer and uh, he was an attorney first too. And he's like, once he, once he realized that, like, he's like, I'm smarter than these dopes. I'm like, for my clients, not that you're saying that, but that's what he yeah, said. No. Like, I can do this. I'm smarter I'm than this. I'm a real estate developer. We're not dopes. Um, <laughs> well, you were the attorney first. So, yes. Um, so, I when just, I, I was a kid, I, I had an interest in like I, in development. I didn't even know what that was. My, my uncle was a developer. 
my grandfather was a developer. He, I don't even know if he went to high school, but like, you know, he was a developer. And like, then my uncle was an attorney. He was a developer. So I thought, and I was going to go to law school. That was, I took my LSATs and I was about to go to law school. And I was like, because I wanted to be a, a developer, right? Because I thought, yeah. oh, that's how you become a developer. But but there was no like no. rhyme or reason <laughs> to how you become a developer, right? It's just kind of. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, I, what I came to realize, it took me a while, um, is that there's no PhD in development or like degree. you can get a degree in real estate development or, you know, like um, take some courses, Columbia and NYU, just thinking about the New York City schools um, offer uh, programs in real estate. But there isn't really, really a way, right or wrong way to develop. I think it's really, um, it's really something that you learn through experience and through um, uh, trial by fire. I think that that, it's it's actually sort of an interesting take because you know over the course of my career I've worked with uh, for a lot of at a lot of companies and you know there's no new land in New York and in most cities so everyone's looked at every parcel at every deal and it may trade trade hands and go nowhere and then ten years later everyone's looking at this you know same deal again and like it clicks for somebody out there while everybody else is looking at them and saying, well, why the heck did you buy that? That's overpriced or that's undervalued or overvalued or how can you find value in that thing and or in that parcel? And I think that's one of the things that makes um, development really interesting and real estate really interesting is that it is unique, um, that people find value in unique ways based on their operating models and, and their um, goal, you know, goals, expertise, interests. Um, and that there isn't one right way or wrong way to do it. Um, uh, the other thing I would say about being a developer is that, cause you know, people say, so what does it mean to be a real estate developer? And like, it's hard to answer that question. I don't know if your uncle or anyone ever gave you a satisfactory response, but it's kind of like being everything. Um, you need to, you need to just be an all around player and, and be able to, like whatever needs to get done, you need to be able to do it or figure out a way to do it. You're kind of like and, the quarterback, right? But you're also, you got to like quarterback everything, but you also got to be like, do the dirty work too, right? Yeah. And it involves, it involves like, you know, um, design and, and working with architects. And it also involves regulatory process and getting through agencies. It involves consultants like your lawyers and your engineers and your environmental folks. Um, and you need to assemble a team, but like, there's no one right path. Like there's no checklist that everyone can follow to a successful development. I don't think. What about if like, one, you should email it to me. I'm open. I, I'm sure. <laughs> but I, it's like, say somebody is like, wants to be a developer. They're, yeah. uh, who knows what they are. Maybe they're an attorney. Yes. I get a lot of requests from attorneys. Can you find me a job in real estate? Yeah. Um, like what? What skill so set do they need to acquire? I know, like, I know there's a lot of skill sets, but like, is there yeah. something that you, yeah? Like, how do you make that transition? Oh, that's hard. Um, so how I, I, I made the transition, I think it's hard, and I think it's really hard to break into this industry. Um, and I'm not sure if it's different in different cities, but I'm pretty sure it's similar. Um, I think that. Um, well, one thing I want to tie back to the Navy Yard is that we've recognized this and have actually created a fellowship program with the City uh, oh, College awesome. of New York. Yeah, um, CUNY, 
um, to uh, give students fellowship opportunity to work alongside us that gives them, um, you know, I, I think the hard, I, I just said this to someone on my team the other day, um, you know, the hard part about real estate, get bringing in real estate development is that you have to have experience to be in real estate development. Right, but then right. how do you get experience to be exactly. in real estate development? Exactly. Who knows? You have to, it's like you can enter a lot of different ways and you can crack in a lot of different ways, but there's not one path and it's not a guarantee. And there's, I don't have a great answer other than I do think that there should be um, more pathways to entry, especially for um, diverse candidates um, and uh people who um, are interested in the field, but um, might not have like an uncle or grandfather or somebody who can advise them. Um, and that's what we're trying to do in our fellowship program. Um, I, for me, I would say that um, working uh, for Mike Bloomberg and City Hall was, uh, a, and what that job required, which was essentially being everything, um, getting the job done, um, no matter kind of what it takes. Like sometimes I was working on press issues. Sometimes I was working on transaction issues. Sometimes I was, um, negotiating with a real estate developer or the Highline, um, or creating the city bike program, like being able to be flexible and an all around player, I think is, uh, kind of the, best way to break in because that's a skill set that you need i think it's great to have you know some kind of um if you're a lawyer like you bring certain um skills to the table um but i don't think there's one pathway in i think you have to be persistent and i think you have to be uh flexible in an all-around athlete so to speak you're a great athlete thanks (laughs) do you um do you My dad see, would be proud. <laughs> do you see more diversity, women in development lately? Um, I think there's a long way to go, to be totally honest with you. Um, I think, you know, there's some a saying, like, the best day to plant a tree is yesterday. yesterday? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and um, I think that that's really true when it comes to diversity in the pipeline of real estate professionals. Um, and while we can't turn the clock back to yesterday, like we should be doing a lot more today. And, um, and uh, I, I think that the industry has a long way to go and is looking to improve. Um, but I think everybody has uh, I think it, it, there's greater diversity to be had in this industry. And what's your take? I mean, there's definitely like a call to action right now. Yeah. Um, from our, our clients and that's helped. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's not too late. It's just, no, know, no. it's been a long time. Yeah. It's been a long time. I mean, I've been doing this almost 20 years and this is the first time I've really had a call to action. Like, all right, we really need to like, we're not just, we're, we're hiring someone diverse right now. We have to. And it's mainly because I've, I've discussed this before, but it's called investors are requiring that now. Um, so whatever gets the job done. So it's, I, I think that, you know, I think it's, um, not just about, um, hiring diverse folks, but um, mentoring them, growing them, developing their careers. And then also, um, and this is a challenge um, across gender lines as well, um, uh, 
like having their voice be heard at the table. I, I, I do believe that um, you can, and, and there's plenty of studies, it's not my, just my personal belief that um, having a diversity of opinion and perspective yields greater profit, better product, so on and so forth. And I think that um, real estate can benefit from that too. There just has to be a real commitment and it's, it's going to be hard, you know, because you can't, because you can't plant that tree yesterday. Yeah. Um, but you can today. Well, I just know from my own company, my own company, I think is pretty diverse. Um, Jackson Lucas. And yeah, I love that. I mean, it's just, it's not just one way of thinking about things. Um, but yeah, it, it, I like it. I, I'm open, you know, but not everyone's open to suggestions. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think I, I th fancy myself pretty open to suggestions. Um, are you ready for the hot seat? Uh oh. <laughs> it's so hot in here. The Hot Seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofit startups and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities, reduce turnover, and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So. They outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com. K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. So hot. <sighs> it's warming up in New York. Yeah. Sure. How's it kind weather? of. I'll be there We've next had week. some cold days, but also some warm. We're in that period where everything is crazy all the time. I'm going to switch it up on the hot seat a little bit today. We usually okay. have these set questions, but um, tell me about a mentor you've had. Okay. Um, I think uh, one of the most amazing mentors that I have had in my career is actually someone who started on the opposite side of a negotiation table for me mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and talk about a hot seat. Like it was a hot, a heated negotiation uh, <laughs> where I did not think an outcome. Um, I was not convinced when we walked in um, that we would come to a positive outcome and we did. Um, through like nine months of negotiation or six to nine months of negotiation, really intense every week, um, very diametrically opposed. Uh, this person is a, a gentleman who's um, much senior to me and... and um, Old guy. No. <laughs> I mean, I'm only 25, so... Uh, yeah, well, everyone's older than you. He's like 45. No, he's um, older... <laughs> depending on what scale of time you're using here. Yes. Um, um, but, you know, he was the lead negotiator on his side and I was the lead negotiator on my side. And we each had our lawyers and our uh, designers and architects and consultants. And it was a very complicated uh, situation that involved another, an outside transaction and a waterfall. And it was crazy. I will say, that even when we signed everything, it was unclear that it would work because the trigger was another transaction. 
it mm-hmm. did work. Um, and we have an amazing project today. Um, but he has become uh, a wonderful mentor to me um, at coming out of that hot seat. Um, yeah. Mentors are key, at least in my career and in life in general, not just career wise, just in every aspect of my life. Yeah. And I'd say like um, the most important or one of the things I value the most um, about that relationship um, and mentor um, mentee relationships is like, I'm a pretty straightforward person and like getting the real deal, um, you know, like understanding how it really works. Um, yeah. And you can't um, get that anywhere else. <laughs> That's awesome. Yep. Um, and we talking about podcasts off the air. Yeah. What's your favorite podcast now? What'd you go to? Okay. Um, so as we talked about, um, I got a lot going on in my professional life, personal life, two kids, not a lot, but a lot for me. me. (laughs) I got one. That's, that's twice as many as I have. Yeah. Um, so, um, but I was an early podcast adopter and, um, listened to podcasts many years ago or started listening. I actually grew up listening to the radio. My mom was pretty old fashioned and we listened to the radio. Um, Oh Yeah kind of more than we want, were allowed to watch TV. So That's I guess cool. I was like into the format. So like NPR? Um, um, like NPR local talk radio in Chicago. Um, also formative in my early years. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, so I have for many years been listening to the podcast 99% Invisible, which is yeah, about architecture and design. Yes. Um, I recommend it to everyone and have like a, email I can send you with my hot uh, takes on best episodes. Um, so when I get a chance, I listen to that. Um, I listen to how I built this because um, mm-hmm. I'm very interested in entrepreneurship and innovation. Um, that is also another theme in my career. Um, and I think a part of the real estate industry that, um, you know, in the last few years, we've seen more innovation and disruption, and I think there's more to come. Um, uh I also in the I also listen to a Peloton pad, podcast called The Clip Out. Um, yeah, because Is it about certain rides they have. <laughs> no, it's like more about the company and oh, okay. um, like the share price and you know strategy and direction. Um, you know my my role today um, um, is certainly based in real estate. Um, and you know we're running a huge property, but it um, has shifted or become more, um, even more about the bus- about running the business. And um, I find that those kinds of um, yeah. strategies and sort of um, discussions really interesting and really helpful to my work. That's awesome. How are those for podcasts? Those are great. <laughs> oh, and my kids listen to a great podcast called "Greeking Out" about. Oh. Greek mythology that they're super into that I oh, that's cool. listen to too. <laughs> Not about Greek food? No. <laughs> I like that. I love Greek food. Love Favorite cuisine, if that's your next yeah? question. Yeah. If no, I could only that, I eat like, one yeah. kind of cuisine, it would be Mediterranean. or Greek. A big lamb gal? Are you a big lamb gal? No, it's more just like the dips and the vegetables yeah, yeah. and the cheese. <laughs> When you dip, I dip. Um, <laughs> what else was I going to say? Um, what 
advice? What do you look for in hiring a person? Great question. Um, and I think this goes to like the diversity angle too, or the diversity question too. Um, I think it is the the hiring is a responsibility um, as well as a privilege. Like obviously you're hiring somebody that's going to add to your team, amplify the work that you're doing, help you do more work um, or higher value work or, um, or get more or, or the whole organization get more done. So there's a great like um, upside for the hiring manager. Um, But there's also a huge responsibility um, to, hire somebody that is going to work within work for, within the culture of the organization. And I think that that often gets, um, you can often forget about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, um, like this person might be great for what we need right now, but like, are they going to be able to grow, survive, thrive, excel um, in the culture that we have or in the work that we have um, and be able to get great long-term fit? Um, so I, I look for that. Um, my interviews are really about getting to know the person shouldn't reveal too much in case somebody thinking about interviewing with me is also listening to this podcast. Um, but I, I, I say this in, um, most of my interviews, like a resume is a great 2d depiction of a person, but in an interview and in an interview process, I'm trying to get a 3d, um, kind of picture of the person and, how they operate, what's important to them, where they see their, um, you know, quote unquote, what do they want to be when they grow up? Like, what do they see themselves doing in five or 10 years? Because um, I think that can tell you a lot about if they're the right person to do the job that you have today and will be like fulfilled and sustained and a long-term hire. I think one of the toughest things, particularly today in the environment of like the great resignation and whatever is going on in our labor force um, Mm. is if you hire someone, you train them and they're out in not, you know, in a short amount of time, that's just a big drag on your productivity and on your company. Right. Um, Good answer. What, uh, I mean, what impact, this is the impact real estate podcast, right? Yes. What impact does your real estate have, or would you like your real estate to have on the world? Um, wow, that's deep. Go <laughs> um, deep. One word answer. I'm kidding. No. Um, listen, I think that, um, I think at the Navy Yard, our impact is really around, um, like provide, providing a place for companies to grow and, uh, for those companies to provide high quality jobs to New Yorkers at various levels of training and educational experience. And so that is a super high impact, like the real estate is going to work in that way. And, and there, the impact is really clear and the it's very much embedded in the work that we do. Well, I was just going to say, Johanna, you're an amazing person and uh, have a great, I mean, you're just, since I've known you, which hasn't been long, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. Very interesting background. I mean, you've done some really cool stuff and are continuing to do some cool stuff and you seem very passionate about it. So thanks so much for coming on here and sharing your your passion with us. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. 